Now this morning we are digging into the letter of Titus and really looking at verses, uh, beginning to look at verses 8 to 11. And this morning we're going to be looking at really particularly just verse 8. And I just want you to think about the transition that we're making here. It's very intentional. God has saved us, justified us, made us an heir. Now what? Now what does he want us to do? Or you could say, we've gone through the what of salvation. Now we're looking at the so what of salvation. Now that God has saved us and made us an heir, now what does he want us to do? When God saves and redeems a person, as we've looked at from Titus, he regenerates them, he washes them, he regenerates them, justifies them, makes them an heir. And, and as a result of the work of God, the person is recreated in the image of Jesus Christ. And the person begins to live differently in, in how he lives for God instead of himself. If God saved you through faith in Jesus Christ, that, that, story is true of you it'll look a little different in everybody's lives but if God has saved you your life has been changed because of it uh, some scriptures verses that succinctly capture this for us are our second Corinthians 5 uh, verses 14 through 17 I'll just read that for you for the love of Christ controls us having concluded this that one died for all therefore all died and he died for all so that they might so that they who might Sorry, that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And then Galatians 2.20 is another place where this is encapsulated for us. For there Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. These passages emphasize God's work in, in transforming the orientation of the lives of all those he saves. At the same time, these passages reveal a willing and intentional cooperation that God places within his people so that we, we want to do the things that he commands us to do. He doesn't have to twist our arm. The service that we offer isn't the forced service of an unwilling slave, but the joyful response of a child to God's love. This morning, though, we're going to look at Titus 3, 8. And uh, with, without, with, before we go any further, just really want to read that to you. I'm going to begin at verse 8 uh, and read through 11. But just keep in mind uh, the things that we have uh, read in context uh, earlier in this chapter. Paul says in verse 8, this is a trustworthy statement and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning being self-condemned. Paul, having laid out the grace of God that, that saved us and made us an heir, now provides grace-fueled instructions on how Christians are to live in light of these settled realities that he has uh, given us in verses 1 to 7. Now what do we do? Right, And, and in this uh, outline, we're going to be seeing three things. Pursue those things which are profitable, which are good and profitable. That, that's in verse 8. We're going to see to avoid those things which are worthless and unprofitable. And then we're told to avoid those, those worthless people who are corrupt. And, and today we're just going to look at that, that, that first point of the instructions that, that Paul uh, provides to Titus to pass along to the church. What do we do? Today, I just want you to, to, to see the main message from verse 8. To pursue things which are good and profitable. Pursue things which are good and profitable. And, and really, this is broken out in, in two different things for us. You can look at verse 8 and see this. Um, verse the, the first thing that, that Paul highlights is the fact that he wants Titus to speak confidently. 
He, Paul wants him to teach these things confidently. In fact, in fact verse 8 begins with uh, the statement, this is a trustworthy statement. And, and this verse, this, this first part of verse 8 is a, is a hinge that helps swing the door open from, from the gospel, the grace that is received, to the, to the actions that, that uh, grace uh, motivates us to do. Uh, Paul says this is a trustworthy statement. Now, Paul uses this statement in four other places in the pastoral epistles. Uh, you can go look those up uh, sometime and look at all of them. But, but it's a phrase designed to get your attention and, and to commend the reference saying to be trustworthy. It's bringing emphasis to it as, as, as faithful. The saying may have been a well-known creed or a hymn or a quotation uh, that that uh, Paul is is using under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to draw believers' attention to this. Now, typically in in the pastoral epistles, the, this this statement of commendation is given before the statement. So he'll say, "This is a trustworthy statement," and then give you the statement. But in in this case, it's pretty obvious that um, that Paul has given the um, the statement first, and then at the end put this statement. This is a trustworthy statement. Now, what commentators disagree on is what is the extent of the statement? Because in, in, in Paul's intention, he uh, he has, hasn't really specified with, with absolute clarity what that statement is. But, but for sure it would involve, I think, verses 4 to 7. Because verses 4 to 7 are one sentence in the Greek. So that's one statement. So for sure it involves it involves verses uh, four to, to seven. And then um, we could say because verse four begins with the word but, uh, verse three begins with the word for, it all kind of ties together. So uh, Paul may be intentionally including everything that he said verse, from verses one to seven. So that just to get, just to, just to say that this trustworthy statement is, is, I think, inclusive of, of what, um, that's really loud. But anyway, we'll continue. Maybe it's not loud for you, but it's all of a sudden loud for me. All right. Verses uh, 1 to 7 are inclusive of what's being said there. Now, why, why would Paul make a, make a statement like this at, at this juncture? He makes it because of what he's going to do. Um, Look, look at what he says. He says, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. He's going to, to, to tell Titus to speak confidently. And so before he is bringing that, that command in there, he is shoring up the foundation of what he just said. He is uh, reassuring the, the, this, the, the confidence of, of the passage given so, so that Titus can teach this with confidence. You know, God, God saved us. The whole passage emphasizes this. It's God's salvation is God's action from beginning to end. And as we've looked at, and, and, and as you'll, I'll point out later, Paul's not neglecting of faith. He's not neglecting belief here. It is absolutely necessary to believe in Christ to be said, to be saved. But what he is doing is putting the emphasis where it rightly, it rightly belongs. He is giving God credit for saving us, right? And and so even that faith that we exercise, which is necessary, we know from Ephesians chapter 2 that that faith is a gift. And so Paul is just really spotlighting God's grace, God's grace upon unworthy people. And he's doing that for a reason. Right? He wants you, he's not, again, as I said before, he's not beating us down. What he's doing is helping us to see reality, that we were saved by God's grace Nothing in ourselves to motivate us, to fuel our, our actions, uh, to do what he wants us to do, to actually, actually to, to, um, to be a vessel of that grace, that undeserved grace and mercy to those around us. That, that's what he's doing. You see, our, our natural sinful human tendency is to resist the thinking um, that we are absolutely powerless and helpless to save ourselves. We, we've gone over this, so this is just a review. But, but, the, but here, Paul is rightly putting all the credit on God. 
you look at Ephesians 2, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Other passages call us uh, to be to be blind to, to spiritual things. So, so just understand the human tendency is that we want to think that we have contributed to our salvation in some way because that makes us feel worthy, intelligent, or better about ourselves. Again, knowing that God deserves credit for everything shouldn't make you feel bad. If you do, you've wrongly understood the scriptures. It should make you rise with joy of praise for what God has done, that, that he and he alone rescued you. And, and no one else could do it. You couldn't do it. Nobody else could do it. He could do it and has done it if you have believed in Christ. Paul's point is that we didn't deserve God's grace. He, we don't deserve God's salvation or God's justification. And we certainly don't uh, deserve being made heirs, heirs of God. God did it all by grace. And so Paul moves from that to, to tell Titus to speak confidently. So remember who Titus is. He's one of Paul's uh, assistants. So he's an apostolic delegate. He's not exactly like the local pastor who stays long term. He is there on a mission. Paul left him there to help organize the churches on Crete, help to appoint elders within the church, help provide order within the within the church. There's evidence to suggest that the churches were either relatively new or or a lot of um, false teachers were within the churches and had to be dealt with. So we'll, we'll get to that um, in next week's message. We, we've seen similar things, or Paul say similar things to Titus uh, in our study. But what Paul wants him to do, he's stating it. He goes, I desire. He said, look at verse 3. He goes, concerning these things, and again, these things is referring to that trustworthy statement, but, it, but it's, it's the instructions that Paul has uh, given to Titus. And he says, concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. Now, now, when Paul says, I want you to speak confidently, what is he doing? Is he like stepping outside his inspired, um, you know, text that he's writing and saying, now this is my opinion. You know, I don't know what God thinks, but this is my opinion. No, he's not doing that. He is expressing a desire. But because God, you know, because he was an apostle and because this is in the text of Scripture, we know this is not just Paul's desire. This is also God's desire. So when you, see, you read there in that statement where he says, I want you to speak confidently, you know, that's coming from God. God wants Titus to speak confidently. It, Titus was to preach and teach with confidence because these things were the truths uh, that God gave through Paul and, and they come with God's authority. Now, notice what Titus is to speak confidently about, these things. And again, I think that points to what Paul has laid out in verses 1 to 7. And this is not the first time that, that Titus was told to speak with authority. You know, the natural tendency of pastors is to want to please those that they are teaching to. Right? That's a temptation for all pastors. But there is a greater... Um, audience that that a faithful pastor will preach to or with that authority and that's for, to to god in, in a sense i i'm preaching to be faithful to god and you're the beneficiaries of that but there's a temptation to soften things that people don't like right and and that's the sign of an unfaithful pastor right faithful pastors will will tell you what the word of god says even when the word of god says something you don't like or our culture doesn't like and certainly we've we've gone through parts of Titus where that's we've we've dealt with that. Right? Where that our culture is going the exact opposite direction, and many, many churches today won't even read Titus 2, let alone teach through it, teach what it says. But if you look just a moment in Titus 1, you'll see that that this that that Paul provided Titus uh, an admonition before about um, speaking confidently in verse. In verse 9, verses 9 to 11, Paul tells Titus that an elder must be holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so to be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. And he adds there, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. So he's just saying that an elder... And just by way of reminder, that's a pastor. Pastors, whether you call them pastors, you call them elders, shepherds of the flock, 
they must have this characteristic. They must hold fast to the word of God so that they be able to instruct in what's right and to refute those who contradict and to silence those. And anyway, I talked about silencing. And just a reminder, that's, that is uh, just removing the platform that these false teachers have to speak within the church or to those that are part of the church. Look at Titus 2, verse 1. Titus 2, verse 1. He says, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Right? Um, and he says there, uh, just lays things out. He, he tells Titus to, to speak these things. Speak them. Preach them. Teach them. Titus 2.15, he says, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. And he adds this, Let no one disregard you. Not because, Ty, not because Paul was necessarily um, anybody beyond an apostle. Not, not because Titus was necessarily all that of an important person. But because this is what God says. Let no one disregard you. So when a faithful pastor brings the word of God and it's rebuking to you, receive it as from God, not from man. The confidence and authority here uh, that, that Paul expects Titus to have is not self-fabricated. This isn't Titus kind of working himself up in the back room and a friend that come out all worked up and emotionally just, just spun up. No, his confidence and authority come from God as the word of God is accurately and accurately taught and preached. Now, I, w- I want you to see an example of what is going on, because Paul just commands it. He doesn't give an example. So if you would, turn to Acts 2. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I'm beginning looking at, I'm beginning reading at verse 22. And just to give you a little context, this is uh, Peter's sermon um, on the day of Pentecost. And I just want to jump in and just notice how bold Peter, Peter who denied Jesus three times because just some servant girl accused him of being with Jesus. You're one of those. And, and three times he denied it. This is, the, this is the Peter who is now empowered by the Holy Spirit. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. Now, he could have weaseled out of that. He could have said, the Romans nailed to the cross. Couldn't he? But what did he say? You. You. He looked at those Jews on the day of Pentecost who had come from all over the world, he turned to them and said, you crucified him. He wasn't saying that meanly. That was just inaccurate. They needed to hear it. He says, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men. So he recognizes the Romans' role in this and put him to death. But God raised him up again and and putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to, to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence. For he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make no, you make me full of gladness with your presence. So if in your Bible, though that those verses from 25 to 28 are all in capitals, it's because it's uh, those are paraphrases or quotations of Old Testament passages. And he says, 20, verse 29, Brethren, I may confidently say to you that regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today, to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and therefore, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until your enemies, so I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. There he does it again. So I want to read from from one to the other. He does it again. Whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they got indignant through rocks, right? No, that happens sometimes with the preaching of the gospel, but this time it did not. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified as he confidently preached. And you see the, the results of that on the day of Pentecost. That's a good example of preaching confidently, preaching with the authority of God. If the pastor is to preach confidently, and this, this, this command to, to Titus is really, uh, it's, it's timeless. It, it flows down to the responsibility of every pastor and teacher of the Lord's church. If the, if the pastor is to preach confidently, then the local church is to receive the teaching with confidence. If I'm teaching you the word of God, you must receive it not as my instruction, but as God's instruction. And I'll just remind you again, be like the Bereans. Take what I'm saying to the word of God. And if it matches the word of God, then you're under the authority of God. And really, if you've been saved by God, you want to do what God wants you to do. So so be uh, teachable, be uh, quick to obey the Lord's teaching. And if you receive the teaching with confidence, this helps you pass along the, the message with confidence. So when you go proclaim the gospel to a coworker or to a neighbor or a family member, you, you don't go with, with a kind of sheep, sheeplessly, you know, kind of uh, bashfully. You're kind of like, well, you know, I, I, I think I have the, uh, a gospel that, that might change your life. No, you, you go and you say, God, the God of this universe died for your sins. And he's been resurrected to newness of life. And you don't have to die in your sins if you'll just believe in Christ. I'm not saying be obnoxious. I'm not saying being prideful. That, that, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what the scripture is saying. Speak with love. Speak with grace. And speak the truth confidently. This, this isn't a maybe. This is a sure reality. So, you know, receiving the teaching with confidence helps you then to spring into action with confidence, which is where we're going with this. Why? Do, is, the, is the pastor to teach this with such confidence? Because the Lord wants you to be sure of what his word says so that you will know what to do and get busy doing it. Right? Notice where he goes with this. In verse 8, concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that. Notice that phrase, so that. We've seen these before. It reveals the, the result of the purpose, why God is giving this, what he wants you to do. Titus says to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. That brings us to our second point. These these good and profitable things we are to pursue. First, speak confidently or receive the word with confidence. Secondly, be careful to engage in good deeds. Now, notice that little phrase there, those who have believed God, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. This instruction is given to those who have believed God. And and this phrase shows us that all the emphasis on God in verses 4 to 7 has, has not caused Paul to forget about faith. Right? So belief is necessary, and even in this context, I, I just am amazed at the, the wisdom of God in almost every context that, that really rallies and affirms the sovereignty of God and salvation. He also places uh, a corollary to that that you must believe. And, and this is it in this text. You must believe. So those who have believed God would would engage and do works. 
Now, the way this is written shows that this person, it's not just a one moment, yeah, I believe, and, and that's it. This is a belief that, that the type of belief that comes when God regenerates and God saves, and it's the kind of belief that continues throughout the believer's life. So scripture very clearly teaches the perseverance of the saints. That is, the, the saints will persevere no matter uh, the difficulty or the struggles with sin. They will persevere and, and not deny God. Those who look like Christians, profess to be Christians, but in the end deny God and, and go wayward were never his to begin with. It was all just a, a, a show. Um, it was all done for all the wrong reasons. They they weren't converted at all. If you're made a child of God, if you're made a child of God, you're always a child of God because that God is the one who made you that. Now, if we're looking at the text, we understand what what the the importance of this. Those who have believed God. This phrase shows us that this instruction to do good deeds is not intended. For the unconverted. If you're not converted. Don't misunderstand this. This doesn't even really apply to you. But if you're a follower of Christ. If you've been converted. If you've been saved. If you've been made heir. This instruction is for you. You see the unconverted need to know. That salvation justification. And and being made an heir of God. Come through faith. By the actions and grace of God alone can't be earned, right? Paul says that not by deeds which we have done in righteousness can't be done. Um, to the unconverted, the message is stop, stop what you're doing, stop striving, stop striving, and trust in the Lord for the forgiveness of your sins and the acceptance before God. You can't go to church enough. You can't do enough good things. You can't avoid enough sin. You can't do it. You can only be justified, saved, made an heir by trusting in Jesus Christ. But to the converted, the message is this. Get busy working as a result of the grace which you have received. You show that you're genuinely an heir of God, co-heir with Christ when you live like that, when you are acting like one. I don't mean acting in a fake sense, but it's coming from your heart. Listen to Spurgeon drive this point home to his congregation. He says this, To the sinner that he may be saved, we say not a word concerning good deeds except to remind him that he has none of them. To the believer who is saved, we say 10,000 words concerning good deeds, beseeching him to bring forth much fruit, that in this way he may be Christ's disciple. There is all the difference between the living and the dead. The living we arouse to work, the dead must first receive life. Exhortations that most most fittingly be addressed to the regenerate may be quite out of place when spoken to those who are under the power of unbelief and are strangers to the family of grace. You cannot work that which will please God if you are without faith in him. Now, Now, what does Paul mean when he says that we who have believed God, must be careful to engage in good deeds. What are good deeds? What are good works? Good deeds are those things that God considers good works for us to do. They're the things that God wants us to do. There's such a, there's such a uh, I guess, parallel in, in so many of the teachings between Titus 3 and Ephesians 2. I keep going back there, this time to, to, to verse 10. Think about what Ephesians 2.10 says. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Listen to that. It's it's very so similar to what we're learning in Titus. Paul's saying in Ephesians 2, the same thing he's saying in, in Titus 3, just in different words. You are the Lord's workmanship. And because you are his workmanship, you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And he adds that in Ephesians 2, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Think about that. God is not haphazard in his saving you. And he's not haphazard with how he wants you to live your life. God has prepared beforehand works for you 
to do. Now, good deeds or good works is a broad term that includes many things. And I just want to give, kind of get practical here and just list some of these. Obedience to the instruction and commands of God is a, a good deed. Thus, in the context of Titus 3, being subject and obedient to rulers and authorities, what we see in verse 1, speaking, uh, speaking, build, speaking up in ways that build up and, and don't malign people are a good work. Uh, being peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men are examples of good works or good deeds. If you look at Titus 2, being sensible, being pure, being a loving wife who devotes herself to working at home are examples of good deeds that God calls women to do. Being temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith and love and in perseverance are examples of good deeds that men are called to do. Acts of agape love, that is, a self-sacrificing love, shown to your fellow Christian, to your neighbor, or a total stranger, are deeds, are good deeds. Work, any kind of work, pursued with excellence for the glory of God is a good deed. Evangelism, proclaiming Christ, is a good deed. Submission to church elders is a good deed. Any actions that show you genuinely consider the interest of others as more important than your own interests are good deeds. Prayer for others is a good deed. Being patient, rejoicing in everything, praying without, cease, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks in everything are also good deeds. Living life outwardly with an inward disposition of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control produces a life of, full of, of good deeds. You recognize these are the fruits of the Spirit. These come out in good deeds. True good deeds are those prepared by God for us to walk in them. They are fruits of a life that is abiding in the true vine, Jesus Christ. So it uses some of the, you know, the analogy there from John 15, where Jesus says, Abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. And the Father will prune you and to bear even more fruit. There is truly no shortage of good works that we can pursue for the good of those around us and for the glory of God. You know, there's just, there's just, there's so much to work to, to be done, that God has prepared for us. The problem isn't finding work. The problem is finding workers, which is why the Lord of the harvest says to, to pray. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers into the harvest field. There's a ton of work, but there aren't enough workers. It's probably helpful to, to, to look at, at even what defines a good work. I, I've given you examples of good works. It's probably easier to to see than, than uh, to define, but, but there are some people that have, have provided helpful definitions of good works. John Gerstner is one. John Gerstner sees good works as having three aspects, or having three key aspects. A good deed is any activity which proceeds from a right motive, love, is in accord with the proper moral standard, God's law, and aims at the glory of a worthy object, in this case, God. So it's any activity which proceeds from a right motive, love, in accord with the proper moral standard, God's law, and aims at the glory of a worthy object, in this case, God. Abraham Kuyper calls a work good when it conforms to God's moral law and it is done in faith. When it conforms to God's moral law and it is done in faith. Uh, Dr. Roskup, who uh, previously taught at the Master Seminary and now is in heaven enjoying the Lord's preaching, he says this, we must actively do the work realizing that although the Spirit works in us, He does not work in our place. Yet without Him, we can do nothing that is truly good. So it is we ourselves who do it, making the work our own. But all the while, it is He that is wrought in us, wrought it in us so that He deserves all the glory. Unquote. Right? So that, that's the nature of of good works. Those are some examples of, of good works. And, and I want to point out um, what Titus tells, what, sorry, what Paul tells Titus. It's not just, not just engage in good deeds. What does he say there? Verse 8. So that those who have believed God will be Today's not a good technology day, but that's okay. The preaching will go on. Not sure what's uh, what's happening there. 
we must be careful to engage in good deeds, good works. Notice that the instruction is given in a present tense. So it's something that is ongoing. This isn't just like a one-time thing. The churches were to make a one-time corrective. No, this is something that was to be an ongoing concern or priority for the church. In other words, when, when, um, when Paul uses the phrase to engage or to be careful to engage, he is, he is highlighting the believer's responsibility to be thoughtful, strategic, and purposeful concerning doing good deeds. In other words, we shouldn't just pursue good deeds when it kind of knocks on our door. You know, there's an old lady that needs help crossing the street. Well, obviously, go help her cross the street, please. Don't be one of those bystanders, all right? Get engaged and help her. But the issue is, go looking for the opportunity. That's, that's really what Paul's saying. He's saying, go looking for it. Be ready. Be ready, like pounce on it. Um, the, the idea is for us to be devoted to good deeds. Now, this isn't the only thing that Scripture tells us to be devoted to, but it's the one that Paul is highlighting right here. It, it is to be one of the major priorities of a believer's life, or, or call it to be devoted to prayer, to be devoted to the love of the brethren, to be devoted to the gathering of the saints. But one of the things we're called to be devoted to is good deeds. Are you careful? Think about it. Are you are you being careful to engage in good deeds? Are you devoted to doing good deeds? Are you actively on the lookout for ways to glorify God by doing good for others, even when they might not immediately notice or might not notice at all? You know, the, the Lord rewards those who are faithful in little things. So the way you get started or the way that you do more of this is just look for the little ways and be faithful in those things. Are you willing to do good deeds? That, that don't make you famous or won't help build your career. Uh, scholars highlight that, that to be careful to do something means to be mentally intent on, to give thought to, um, to concentrate on, to, to, um, to think about. The, the thinking is to lead to doing. The problem is that we'd rather just be devoted to being entertained, to entertaining ourselves, relaxing, resting we had a long day at work and and certainly those that's a true statement right unless you're retired you've had a long day of work doing other things but that doesn't give you a buy on not doing good works either through your day as you're working for the glory of god but then after your day you can't check out at five o'clock you can go home thankfully but you're the lord's and, and there's things that he has for you to do even in the, in the evenings. You know, our society doesn't need exhortations to rest. There are workaholics in this world and they need to be told to rest. I'm not calling you nor is scripture calling you to become a workaholic. But what I am saying is God has prepared good works and you're to pursue those. And when you pursue them for his glory, you will, you will just be filled with his joy, even when you're tired. You won't care that you're tired. You just say like the others, you know, I'll rest in heaven. I got a long future ahead. Maybe not on earth, but in heaven with the Lord. My future is bright. So there, there is, there's many a missionary who simply burned out for Christ. And you can't find a more joyful person than one of those, be it a man or a woman. So we are far from that kind of response, most of us. And I'm speaking in general. So I'm not, I'm not speaking to any one particular person here this morning, but to all of us. Our society needs to be exhorted to, to get busier, work harder, be more devoted to good deeds than we currently are. And I think the uh, church on the island of Crete was very similar to that. And that's probably one of the reasons that Paul instructs Titus to speak confidently about these things. He's like, get a move in there. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done that God has prepared. They need to be doing these things. Again, I just want to turn to, to Spurgeon's words that are often very helpful as he exhorted his own congregation. 
He says, I'm afraid that this precept of being careful to maintain good works is neglected in practice. Or else the apostle would not have said to Titus, I want you to insist on these things. So to speak confidently in these things. Titus must repeat perpetually the precept that, that, um, that you insist on these things. Sorry, the precept that commands the careful maintenance of good works. That commands the careful maintenance of good works. Now, being careful to engage in good deeds is really just a restatement and an emphasis of what he said in verse 1 in verse chapter 3. Um, he says there at the end of verse 1 he, to Titus, remind them to be ready for every good deed. And here we are again. So Paul is saying very closely the, the similar thing. Be careful to engage in good deeds. We, we must be careful to engage in good deeds. But why are we to engage in good deeds? Well, Paul adds that at the end of verse 8. These things are good and profitable for men. Using the word good there in a sense of, of, of like God's kind of goodness. These things are, are genuinely good and they're also profitable. They're profitable for you as you do them, serving the Lord and serving others, but they're also profitable for the one who benefits from your ministry of, of grace. They're good. And we get out on top of that, the unstated, that God has told us to do it, so we just need to do it, even if he didn't tell us why. But he does tell us why. The profitable and good deeds of those who have been saved are, are um, compared in Scripture with the worthless deeds of the false teachers and those who follow them. And this emphasis on deeds, be it worthless deeds or good deeds, is a major emphasis in the letter of Titus. That, that we need to make sure that, that we understand as we're coming close to the uh, complete, completing our study of Titus 3. Let, let me just walk through Titus with you and point out some of these things. Look at Titus 1.16. There, Paul speaking of false teachers. Paul says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Titus 2.7, speaking to Titus specifically and young men in general, Paul says, In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine dignified. And he continues on. In Titus 2.14, Paul reminds us that our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So there Good deeds are put in, into, into contrast with lawless deeds. We were doing lawless deeds. And God saved us through Jesus Christ that we might pursue good deeds. He says there, he uses the word zealous. Do you know that? You're, you're a, you should be a zealot for Christ and a zealot for good deeds. Again, we're speaking to those who are saved, not to those who have not been saved. Uh, look at Titus uh, 3.1. We've already seen this, but I'll read it again just for emphasis. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Our own, the, the verse we looked at in, verses, uh, in verse 5, chapter 3. God saved us. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Titus 3, 8, the one we're looking at. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. And these, th these things are good and profitable for men. And yet one more time in a future message, we'll look at Titus 3.14, where there Paul says, Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. So we are called to be fruitful. We're called to engage in good deeds. So learn how to do that. And it might be you don't know how to do that. But you can learn. You can learn from the scriptures and you can learn by watching others. You can learn by doing. And this emphasis on good works isn't something that Paul brought about in just in Titus. Our Lord really initiated all this. In Matthew 5, verse, uh, verses 14 and 16, Jesus says this, You are the light of the world. A city, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. 
That, that, that is your calling. That's your Lord's words. You are to pursue these good deeds and good works for his glory. Turn to the book of Romans a minute. Where Paul puts quite a bit of emphasis in Romans on this as well. But look at Romans chapter 12. And you know the beginning of verse 12 quite well. But, but look, look down below that. Where Paul begins talking about how the body of Christ is to interact. And to serve one another. Verse 6. Look at verse 6. Romans 12 verse 6. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. If service in his serving. Or he who teaches in his teaching. Or one who exhorts in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of men. And he goes on and on talking about these works. And then going down, even just look um, at verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then in verse 13, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And then he goes on. That this is the Lord's work. Look at verse 12. He says, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Be done with those deeds of darkness. Put on the armor of light to do the deeds of the light. That's that's what Paul is instructing there in, in Romans. We could move on to 1 Corinthians. I'm just read a few others to you. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved... Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Remember, these good deeds are not in toil. God has declared them good. He said they're profitable. He will actually reward that. We haven't talked about that, but he will reward you for your faithfulness. Second Corinthians 9 eight. Then God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you always have all sufficiency for everything you may have, that you may have an abundance for every good deed. God will make sure that you have what you need. And and he's going to do so through through others. And you might have to recruit helpers to do it. But he's going to make sure that, that you have an abundance to do the good work that he wants you to do. He's not going to ask you to do something that you're not able to do in his strength. Um, Ephesians 4.12. It says here, for the equipping of the saints. Pastors are given for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. A lot of churches think that they hire pastors to do the work of service, the ministry. That's that's not true, right? Ephesians four says that pastors and teachers, elders are are given for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. The saints, that's you, are called to carry out the work of the service. I mean, pastors have we have our own calling, uh, but our main job is equipping you to make sure you are equipped. And how are you equipped through the Word of God? Just think about what Paul um, says about Scripture, that all Scripture is given by God, and it is profitable for teaching, correction, and instructing in righteousness. Uh, Paul says in Colossians 1.10, in his prayer there, he's praying for the Colossians church, and one of the things he was praying was that they, they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing the knowledge of God. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. 1 Timothy 6.17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And then in Hebrews 6.10, an encouragement to continue doing these good works. For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence 
so as to realize the full assurance of hope unto the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And and I want to read uh, an extended portion of Hebrews. So if you would, just turn open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. So you can follow along with me. Hebrews chapter 10. And I want you to see verse 7 first. This is what God's grace. And their sins and their lawless deeds I'll remember no more. That's the, that's, those are, the, those are the, the worthless deeds. Those lawless deeds, those worthless deeds. The Lord, the Lord has forgiven you. Those are all gone. Now look at verses 19 and on. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and what? Good deeds. So you, so it's profitable for you to be engaged in good deeds because it helps stir up others to good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The Lord, the Lord has good deeds for His children to do. He's prepared. He's prepared you, and He is preparing you to do those good deeds each day of your lives. Now, I want to get very practical with some of the implications of this as as we wrap up this message. Um, How are we to be ready for every good deed? Start with prayer. Regularly ask God to reveal what good works he has prepared for you uh, and and to do so by helping you to see what you usually don't see and be prepared to spring into action. I have no doubt that every single one of you, if you are physically able, you would help the old lady cross the street. That's the proverbial example. No doubt. No question about it. But you have walked by people who needed help and you didn't help them. So have I. We need to be alert. We need to be on the lookout for, for what the Lord has for us to do. It requires us to be intentional. To, to intentionally take our eyes off of ourselves, our trials, our discouragements, our situation, and to look to the Lord and then look to others. It requires you to think of, of others as more important than yourself intentionally. Right? We think about ourselves a lot. Scripture saying, think about others even more. Consider their interests more important. As I said before, be faithful in the little things. You see something that needs to be done, do it. No matter how little, no matter whether someone notices or not, whether someone thanks you or not. I used to work for a plant manager uh, in a fiber optic cable company uh, down in North Carolina, and he was meticulous at this. Don't walk by a piece of trash. You see a piece of trash, you pick it up and put it in the receptacle. You see a tool in a place, that's your calling. You go put that tool away. You do not leave things out. And he, and he ran a meticulous uh, shop because many customers came through there and it produced a better product. I don't know whether he was a Christian or not, but it is a Christian-like attitude. Right? Don't walk by something that needs to be done if, if you can do it. Do, 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 you see, do you see somebody working that needs help? Go help them. And I know that you would if you were asked. But what the Lord is saying is be intentional. Look, don't wait to be asked. We have a, we have a lot of children in our church, and I'm very thankful for that. But I want to, I want to speak to you just a minute, right? You who want to follow the Lord, many of you have professed faith in Christ. While you're busy playing Lego or or video game or playing with your friends and siblings in some way, playing a game, you need to train yourself to look for someone who could use your help. When your mom is cleaning the house or preparing a meal, don't run from the work. Run to the work. Go ask. Volunteer. Don't wait to be asked. Ask. Mom, how can I help? 
I, I know that playing is a whole lot funner, a whole lot more fun than working. But you need to train yourself to enjoy work. And it is work at times. Work. Work. It's that four-letter word, right? Work. Effort. Teach yourself. Train yourself to enjoy work. The Lord has made you to work. There's times of rest. Again, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying go become a workaholic. I'm saying engage. Even you children. Ask her. How can you help her prepare a meal? Kids, if she's cooking a meal, then go set the table. Right? Um, if someone's doing the dishes, uh, volunteer to dry them or put them away. Again, don't wait to be asked. If, if this, The same goes with older children. If you want to live for God, then look to serve instead of be served. It's not right when one person is doing all the work and the others are just standing around chatting. Help if you can. Doing the work together is an encouragement to the person who is doing the work to start with. And the work is done a lot faster and you can enjoy it. And you can talk. Even many times while you're doing these things, you can you can talk theology. You can talk the scriptures. You can you can even you can even uh, pray for one another while you work. There's, there's all sorts of ways to redeem the time. And the same goes for our church family as well. Be on the lookout for, for someone working to see if they need help. Is someone stacking chairs, moving tables, putting away cables, preparing food or cleaning the kitchen or taking care of the trash? Jump in and help them. Right? And please do not wait to be asked. I will, If you say, Pastor, I need some help, I'm, I'm there for you. I will be glad to, to help you engage. But there's many of you, and if everybody were to come to ask me about something, it, it just slows down the work. Just do it. And and um, just assume responsibility and and go do it and and help out, and and that's what the Lord would have. I mean, I I remember hearing the, the stories of of um, Grace Community Church out where John MacArthur is pastor. It's it's not a perfect church by any means, but it was really neat when in the seventies and eighties when it was growing had explosive growth. Right there was a a a, 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 a there was a sorry a writer from Moody Magazine, which doesn't exist anymore, but but he went and, and tried to observe what was going on, and he and he said that that was the church. He described it as a church with nine hundred ministers, nine hundred ministers. There were about a thousand people in the church, right? So what is the emphasis? He noticed it wasn't that somebody told him. He noticed like everybody's doing something, everybody's engaged, and I don't mean just mean. Sunday morning. That, that may not be possible for everybody to be engaged. But there's all sorts of ministries that the Lord has for us all through the week. And that, that's what he was saying. He, he didn't just go there on a, on a Sunday. But remember that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now that's what our Lord says in Acts 20, 35. Uh, Paul reports that he said that. And, and just start with the, right, with the things right in front of you. Um, then move to think about things that aren't there you know you start with the obvious kind of like observing scripture when you're studying scripture you notice what's written and you also notice what's not written okay so you see the people here this morning and and things that happen that might need help but i want you to see the people who aren't here i want you to see the, the people who aren't here why aren't they here do they need a word of encouragement is some did somebody stay home because they were discouraged and thinks no one cared did somebody stay home because they didn't want to drive in the snow they're concerned about that and, and would have been here if someone would have offered them a ride. Yes, they could have asked and one of us would have. All, all I'm saying is we need to pay attention. I'm trying to open up your eyes to the immense amount of work that the Lord has prepared right here in our own backyard, so to speak. The Lord has lots of work to do for us. And then as we look even beyond our own church family, Set your eyes a little further out. Think about what could I do for the glory of God? Is there something the Lord is moving me to do that, that, that would allow me to expand the glory of God? Some kind of evangelistic opportunity? Yes, you might not be comfortable doing street evangelism. God hasn't gifted everybody uh, to, 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 to do that. Uh, you look at the spiritual gifting, but, but you might be able to set something up to, to prepare the way practically. Um, you can provide uh, 
perhaps opportunities for those that, that can come preach the gospel. You can pray for those. And we have people that go out on a regular basis somewhere. You can, you can say, I, I want to pray. I want to labor with you. I want to pray for you. Let me know when you go out. I want to pray for you. And, and you might even decide to go with them and pray with them. And you can do that too. You're not going to be put on the spot and asked to do anything you're, that you're not ready to do. But you go and pray with them. Per, perhaps God is leading you to, to foster or adopt a child in the name of Jesus. Demonstrating what, what godly, heavenly adoption is, is all about. Right? There's a huge crisis of, of um, just having so many children in the foster care system. Yes, it's not easy. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's not for everybody. If God has prepared you for it, move forward. The Lord will help you get through those difficulties. Perhaps you can tutor students who are struggling with with the with you know struggling in their schoolwork, not only to help them academically, but but to help them spiritually as well. There's just so many opportunities, even within our community, to engage and and look for opportunities to expand the glory of God. And the examples that I that I have given you um, might not be for you. Don't feel like you have to force your foot to, to fit that shoe. The Lord has made you uniquely, and there might be unique things that he wants you to do. Right. So one of the things that, that um, happened during those explosive years of growth at a Grace Community Church is people would come up with it, would see something that needs to be done. They'd see a, a ministry that needs to be done. They'd come to MacArthur, and, and they'd, they'd give him the idea, and they, they would expect him to say, we'll get on that next week. But instead he said, Sounds like a good ministry for you to do. Go do it. And what is he saying? He's putting he's putting the onus back on the person that actually saw the need. So there are some ministries you might need to come to the church elders uh, and and run it by us and and make sure that it's a good idea. So we'll, we'll be glad to to do that. We might even provide some re, be able to provide some resources if there's some finances that's required. But but look at it from the standpoint of what what can I do? And it might be something that you can do individually. Might be something you'll need to a group of people to do, but but you know the Lord has provided these things. Like um, the Lord has provided the Echelon Ministry, which is an outreach to assisted living and independent living. That one came to our door. Can you please teach us the Bible, right? And we said yes. There's actually another um, assisted living facility that's done the same thing. Can you come teach us the Bible? And right now, I don't know. How, I want to say yes, but I don't know how we can without more people involved. And again, that's not to put a guilt trip on you. But if that's something that you want to do, you can go read the scriptures. You can read. You can sing hymns. And if you can't say, "Well, I can't sing," well, recruit someone who can and do that part. Pray with them. So, um, the Lord is bringing these things, and we just need to be faithful with them. Obviously, we need to pray to make sure it's his will, but there's just a ton of work to be done, which is why in Titus 3, he, he, uh, Paul tells Titus to be careful to engage in good deeds. Now, you want to see, I'm going to give you a couple illustrations. They'll be quick. Um, illustrations, biblical illustrations of what, what it looks like in someone's life. In Acts 36, 9.36, uh, we're told this. Now, in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. Doesn't that description of this woman, who we will meet in heaven, our sister in the Lord, this woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. That should be true of all of us. And how God has gifted us. There's another woman like that. Romans 16.1. Paul says this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe. Who is a servant of the church. Which is at Centria. That you receive her in the Lord. In a manner worthy of the saints. That you help her in whatever manner she may have need of. For she herself has also been a helper of many. And of myself as well. She was known as a helper of many. If that if that is the epitaph of your life, that's a faithful one. You will glorify your Lord. You will your life will have been well spent. Most of us are going to serve our entire lives in obscurity. 
And that's okay. Just serve the Lord, and the Lord will notice, and the Lord will reward. Beloved, if you've been saved by Him, by God, pursue those things which are good and profitable. Be careful to, to engage in good deeds. Speak confidently about what God has done for us and what He has taught to us. And next week, we'll look at the other side of the coin, which is avoiding the things which are worthless and unprofitable and rejecting a factious man who refuses to submit to the church elders. Well, let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we are just so thankful for your work of grace. Lord, as your word says, we, we were in a, an impossible situation and you reached out and saved us by your grace and made us heirs transformed us, regenerated us, cleansed us. And now you call us, Lord, to walk in your footsteps, doing the things that you would do, allowing your love to flow through us to those around us, those in the body of Christ, our own family members, and even beyond these walls, and to doing good deeds for those in our community that we might expand the, the glory of God. Lord, just grant us doors of opportunity to proclaim Christ, and Lord, I just ask that you would uh, provide uh, workers for the harvest field, uh, or even right here in Medina, that you would just raise up those workers to do the work of the ministry that needs to be done for the building up of the maturity and the fullness of this church, but also the building up of the larger church in this community and around the world. Thank you so much for your work in our lives, that you have prepared these things, and Lord, that... Um, you are faithful and you will lead us and guide us and provide everything that we need. Lord, help Medina Bible Church to be faithful to your word and to be careful to engage in good deeds, to speak confidently of the things that you have taught us in your word, the things you've done for us, that others might hear and believe as well. It's in the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.